Welcome to podcast episode 238. I'm Stuart McCullough, I'm the CEO of VHAA, and joining me for today's discussion is Senior Workplace Relations Consultant Daniel Pullen. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Stuart. Daniel, you know the drill. I'm going to show uh, this time a series of three clues which will indicate the topic for today's discussion. Uh, they're pictures, and the first one will appear on screen now. For the benefit of those people who are listening rather than watching this podcast, can you describe the image? It was an image of a dog. Uh, that, that is correct. Um, and here comes image number two. Now, once again, Daniel, for the sake of those who are listening rather than watching mm. this podcast, can you describe that image? So I would say that it's, it, it looks like a, a group, or well, it is a group of, of men that look like both Rem and I uh, in the future with our beards. They're a lot more musical, I'm afraid, than you. Uh, that's the Dubliners. Uh, yeah. A band that was famous for having more than one lead singer, uh, Luke Kelly and Ronnie Drew, uh, both of whom are pictured in that photograph as such. But the first two clues are linked, uh, Daniel. I don't know if you can uh, think of what the link might be between those two. No, I'm, I'm really having a tough time. I might need an extra clue. Well, strap yourself in. Uh, the third clue is now coming up on screen. So I'll simply make the point that uh, that that's the, the best picture I could find. Uh, Daniel, would you, would you like to describe it? It's a picture of Cher. It is a picture of Cher. Uh, not only is it a picture of, of Cher, but it's a picture of Cher on the set of a video for the song, If I Could Turn Back Time. Mm. Uh, and that gives some indication as to the subject for today's discussion. So taking those clues together, what would you say we'll be talking about today? So it's a picture of a dog, it's a picture of a band, the Dubliners, and it's a picture mm -hmm. of Sher from the music video, If I Could Turn Back Time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to, I can't explain the dog clue, but I'm going to have to say music therapy. Daniel, you couldn't be more wrong. Uh, granted, there are two musicians there, but that is, that is catastrophically off point. Uh, let's say the dog has a name and the dog is, uh, the dog's called Rover. Uh, the Dubliners once did a song uh, with the Pogues called the Irish Rover, and Cher, as I said before, was responsible for uh, res responsible for the song "If I Could Turn Back Time," uh, a song that I believe is still being investigated. Uh, one of the possibly worst songs uh, of the of the entire decade in the 1980s. Um, but if you put those two together, really, you've got Rover and Time, and that brings us to today's discussion. Uh, just taking out one letter. Uh, takes us to not overtime, but overtime. Uh, Daniel, in particular, we're going to be unpacking uh, the new overtime clause of the Doctors and Training Agreement, uh, which is found at clause 36 uh, of the agreement. And uh, that agreement has just been approved. Uh, but just in terms of where people would find the, the preceding clause in the last Doctors and Training Agreement. Sorry, overtime is actually quite funny. Uh, um, Thank the you for conceding that much. <laughs> Clause 36 uh, is where you would find the doctors in training uh, overtime clause under the current agreement and under the previous agreement. Uh, in preparing the new agreements, and that's true for both the doctors in training and the medical specialist agreement, we've sought to retain the same numbering. Daniel, we're going to go through the clause in some detail, but uh, before we do that, can you give an overview of what the parties have done here? 
So uh, we've done a couple of things, uh, which, uh, as you mentioned, we'll be taking members through uh, this podcast. But firstly, the existing clause was restructured. So why restructure the clause? So uh, agreement terms can accumulate over time. Uh, and a clause might get bigger and bigger, and it can be useful to ask whether things can be expressed more clearly or expressed in the most logical order. So when that occurs, we often find that members might find something surprising that's an existing term, but it simply didn't stand out in the previous agreement. In addition, there are changes that health services need to be aware of and implement. So let's go to the clause. Uh, one of the interesting features of clause 36 is that it begins with an explanation. And it does. So it appears under the heading and before the first subclause at uh, 36 for overtime. The purpose of this clause is to ensure that all time worked is paid and the timesheets or equivalent are submitted within the time required by the health service to ensure that health services have information relevant to the provision of safe hours. So if people uh, want to understand the clause and how it's to operate, that explanation probably tells you everything that you need to know. Yeah, really, there are two elements. The first is that time worked is time paid. And that's self-explanatory. What about the second element? The reference to timesheets being submitted within the timeframe required by the health service. So the health services have information relevant to the provision of safe hours. And in terms of safe hours, what's the relevance of that? So a couple of points. Uh, going back to our first element of time worked is time paid. The submission of those hours on a timesheet is equivalent uh, or equivalent is necessary for that to occur. And the reference to safe hours? So overtime, broadly speaking, is something that's managed and it's managed for a range of reasons in a range of ways. And we'll be going through those in detail in today's podcast. So the focus in this initial statement goes to that point of safe hours. And the agreement has obligations regarding safe working hours. And whilst timesheets aren't the only means by which hours worked are visible, timesheets are the clearest means by which hours can be identified and managed. Yes, it's difficult to, to manage what you can't see. That's correct. Uh, and hours need to be uh, accurately recorded on timesheets, not only to ensure payment for those hours, but also to enable health services to ensure that hours worked are within safe parameters. So that's the explanation at the head of the clause. How does the clause begin? So the first two subclauses make the point that in applying the overtime clause, you've got to understand the hours of work clause at clause 33. So to understand overtime, you need to understand ordinary time. Specifically, the first two subclauses provide at 36.1 that the provisions of this subclause, sorry, of this clause 36 are to be read in conjunction with clause 33, hours of work. And at 36.2, it provides that hours worked in excess of ordinary hours per week pursuant to subclause 33.1 will be deemed overtime, and that overtime may be either rostered or unrostered. But by stating that uh, hours worked in excess of ordinary hours per week, it's defining what overtime is. And there's nothing unusual about that. What's interesting is that the clause refers to overtime being either rostered or unrostered. So that's less common, although not unheard of. Uh, that there are times where overtime is organised as part of a roster and not just a more spontaneous overflow from a shift because of work on a particular day. And that covers what overtime is. Uh, the next subclause goes to how it's to be paid. So at 36.3, it's titled overtime rates. It says where doctors work overtime, the health service must, subject to subclauses 36.4 and 36.5, 
pay the doctor overtime rates as follows. And members can see there on screen uh, the table that provides uh, for overtime worked and the time bands in which that applies. Uh, the payment for uh, the applicable percentage penalty, sorry, for full-time and part-time doctors, and then the casual overtime rate as well. Um, it's important to note, and we have had this question uh, uh, recently, is that that casual overtime rate is inclusive of the 25% casual loading provided for at clause 19.3. And Daniel, you, you started that answer by referring to subclause three being subject to some other subclauses. So we'll come to those subject to clauses shortly because they're uh, addressed elsewhere. But really that table of rates is, is self-explanatory. And look, there's nothing new about the overtime rates, save that the new agreement expressly sets out the casual overtime rate. And whilst that's new to this agreement, it's it's something we've seen quite a bit of in the modern awards. We have, uh, and modern awards have been amended to expressly set out casual overtime rates, and the rates in the doctors in training agreement reflect the rates in the modern award. So the clause setting out payment referred to a couple of other subclauses. The first of these concerned part-time doctors. Yeah, and subclause sub four explains how overtime works for part-time doctors, and it provides that uh, a part-time doctor directed by a health service to work rostered hours in excess of their contracted hours will be paid overtime for those hours, except where a part-time doctor who is offered and accepts additional rostered hours will be paid their ordinary rate of pay until their total weekly hours of work exceed the full-time ordinary hours of work for their classification prescribed in clause 33 hours of work. So really what that's saying is that a part-time doctor's hours are their hours, and if they're required, required being the key word, uh, to work additional hours, then it's overtime. Save that a part-time doctor can agree to work an additional shift, in which case it's ordinary rates, until the doctor has worked 38 hours, which is the limit of full-time ordinary hours specified within the hours of work clause. After working 38 ordinary hours, the employee will receive overtime rates. And that, that principle is not unique to part-time doctors? No, um, that's generally how part-time hours and overtime interact with each other. So that takes us to the second subject to at subclause five, which concerns personal carers leave. It does, uh, specifically at point five, it's titled conversion of overtime to personal or carers leave. And it states that overtime may be converted into carers leave in accordance with subclause 61.3C. So let's have a look at, at subclause 61.3c before we go any further. The doctor may request the health services consent to take time off in lieu of payment for overtime for carer's leave purposes. One hour of overtime worked is equal to one hour of time off for carer's leave. So I'll note two things quickly. Firstly, it's at the initiative of the doctor and not the health service. Secondly, that it's time for time. And thirdly, it's both unusual, but not a new provision. So this is an example of a term that was in the previous clause, but perhaps was a little bit buried. That's right, and it reflects the status quo, and it's not a claim by a VHIA or the AMA made during bargaining. So I want to get to the issue of approval of overtime. So what the clause reflects is that there's more to one pathway to approval, but, in, but it starts with a general statement about getting authorization to work, uh, approval in advance where reasonably practical, uh, specifically at 36.6 provides overtime must where reasonably practicable be authorised in advance subject to the provisions below. So that requirement to have overtime approved in advance is, is not unusual, but obviously the subject to the provisions below part stands out. And we started our discussion by noting that for doctors, overtime can be rostered or unrostered. 
and the nature of rostered time is that it is by nature authorised. Subclause B reflects that fact, so it provides that rostered overtime is authorised in advance. So having identified that rostered overtime is authorised in advance, that leaves us with the issue of unrostered overtime only. So subclause C goes to that issue, and it provides that unrostered overtime should, where reasonably practicable, be authorised in advance, where unrostered overtime is not authorised in advance, it will be deemed to be authorised where it satisfies the requirement of the health services unrostered overtime protocol. So the first part of that subclause uh, restates that requirement to be authorised in advance where reasonably practicable, but it goes further by stating that if it's as per the unrostered overtime protocol, it's deemed to be authorised. Firstly, what is the unrostered overtime protocol? So that's not a new concept, but the job of the unauthorised, sorry, the unrostered overtime protocol is to outline circumstances in which overtime is approved and more broadly, when it can or indeed should be worked. We'll get into those protocols in just a moment, but it's fair to say that the, the role they're intended to play is to support when overtime can be worked. Yeah, which is why it makes sense to say that if you're working overtime in accordance with the protocol, that it's approved. So, Rostered overtime is approved. Overtime that was unrostered but worked in accordance with the protocol is approved. That leaves us then with, um, uh, with unrostered overtime that was not approved in accordance with the protocol or otherwise approved in, in advance. What happens to that category of overtime? Yeah, so the first thing to note is that the time is still paid as long as the doctor includes it on their timesheet. So it provides it D where unrostered overtime is neither approved in advance nor approved in accordance with the health services unrostered overtime protocol, the doctor will be paid for the overtime hours worked where it is submitted on a timesheet or equivalent within the time required by the health service. Save that. So that term ends with a save that, suggesting that there's a bit more to the story. There is. Uh, two respects. Firstly, if there is a dispute as to whether the hours were worked by the doctor, the health service and doctor will seek to resolve that dispute through the dispute settling procedure of this agreement and and really that's saying that health services need to be satisfied that the time in fact was worked and if there's disagreement there's a means by which to resolve that disagreement which is through the dispute settling procedure in the agreement what about the second issue nothing in this term limits the ability of the health service to review the reason the overtime was worked and to take reasonable management steps to reduce the need for overtime to be worked so far as is practicable, including having regard for its obligations under Clause 41, Workload Management and Review, this agreement. So let's talk about reasonable management steps to reduce the need for overtime to be worked so far as is practicable. So remembering that we're talking about unrostered overtime, that's not approved in advance and not authorised through the unrostered overtime protocol. So whilst payment isn't in question, the health service can and should manage the overtime. Daniel, what are some examples of that? So the term makes it clear that beginning with considering the reason the overtime was worked. And it may be that the reason is such that it was both unavoidable and appropriate. It may, uh, but it could also be a reason that the health service thinks the work should have not been done during overtime hours, and it may take steps to ensure that it be done during ordinary hours. So what, in practical terms, what uh, might that look like? It could look like resourcing. Uh, or structuring the work in a way to ensure that uh, certain things are completed in ordinary time. Uh, it could be that there are tasks that the doctor is doing that can be performed by someone else, creating more time to complete those other tasks. 
The critical thing is that with respect to overtime in this category, the health service can manage it. The obvious question though is how far does that go? Could, for example, a health service counsel or even discipline someone for unauthorised overtime? Well, the key term is reasonable management steps. So reasonable management steps, which presumably reasonable having regard for the particular circumstance. And look, if, for example, that was the proposed response to any unauthorised overtime, that would not be reasonable. On the other hand, in the unlikely event that a doctor repeatedly and fragrantly ignored the requirements of the health service, it is possible. But it is worth emphasising that kind of action would really only arise in rare cases, and in any event, it wouldn't be where you start. No, it wouldn't. Um, and the key message is that the time paid, uh, but the right to manage overtime is expressly recognised. Uh, the, the clause referred earlier uh, to unrostered overtime protocols, and we talked about the work that they do. And look, subclause begins by outlining the requirement to have unrostered overtime protocols, and then by describing the role they play in terms of authorising overtime. So at 36.7, it provides that each health service shall have an unrostered overtime protocol, where overtime that has not been authorised in advance, but has been worked, will be deemed authorised and paid if it meets appropriate, clearly defined criteria. One of the interesting things about that, Daniel, is that the agreement doesn't prescribe a uniform protocol. Those are developed locally. But it does outline the elements of the protocol, and there are six in all. So we'll start with the first two. That the protocol will be structured on the following basis. That the doctor has performed the overtime due to a demonstrable clinical need, and that the need could not have been met by some other means. Secondly, it was not practicable for the authorization of the overtime to have been made in advance of the doctor performing the work. So the protocol addresses that there's a demonstrable clinical need and getting authorization in advance isn't practicable. And it really isn't hard to imagine a circumstance that meets those requirements. And the next two elements? So the third provides that the doctor has claimed for retrospective authorization of overtime as soon as practicable after the overtime was worked and no later than the completion of that pay fortnight. And fourthly, that the doctor has recorded the reason for working the overtime and the duties performed in a form capable of the health services audit and review. What stands out about that for me is that these are obligations on the doctor. Firstly, to claim retrospective authorization as soon as practicable and no later than the completion of the pay fortnight, as well as recording the reason in a way that can be verified by the health service. So the fifth element provides that the claim for overtime must be reviewed by the person authorised by the health service to do so within 14 days of the claim being submitted. And finally, where unrostered overtime is worked and not approved in advance or consistent with this unrostered overtime protocol, it will be paid by the health service, but the health service may review the reason for the overtime with a view to ensuring safe working hours. These two elements are really obligations then on the health service uh, to review in a timely manner and a restatement that payment occurs regardless. And it's essentially separating out the issues of the payment of overtime from the management of overtime. So a protocol, Daniel, is not much good if people don't know about it. And subclause C goes to that issue. It states that clause 27.2G of this agreement provides that a copy of the protocol shall be included in the unit handbook. So one question that does come up around the late lodgement of overtime, we noted earlier that the requirement to comply with the timeframes that are set by the health service for lodgement is part of the term. Does late lodgement of overtime mean that overtime is not payable? In short, no. 
um, but it's not to say that it's not free of consequence either. So subclause eight provides that where unrostered overtime is worked but not submitted within the time required by the health service and was either not authorised in advance or not worked consistent with the protocol, the doctor will be paid overtime subject to providing reasonable evidence of the hours worked to the health service. Uh, there's more to the clause, but let's start here. Firstly, it tells us what kind of overtime we're talking about. It's unrostered, not authorised in advance and not as per the protocol. Correct, and it's still paid, subject to reasonable evidence that the time was worked. But the second element goes to the issue of potential outcome for submitting late. It does. So it provides at B that where a doctor does not submit a claim for overtime within the timeframe required by the health service as described at A above, the health service may seek an explanation and take reasonable management steps as a result. Once again, it's that term reasonable management action as well as seeking an explanation. And the question would be, why is it submitted late? Just on the issue of consequence, Daniel, in a sense, overtime isn't different to ordinary time in this clause. If someone didn't submit a timesheet for ordinary hours, that failure doesn't disentitle them to payment. But the, there may be questions to answer as to why it was logged late. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Daniel, thank you for taking us through the changes to clause uh, 36 of the Doctors and Training Agreement overtime. Thank you, Stuart. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast than with a little bit of not share, as you might prefer, Daniel, but um, but the Pogues and the Dubliners, uh, the Irish Rover. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Stuart. Turn right over, hurting nine times around, and the poor old dog was drowned. Ah, the Irish Rover.